Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Ayers LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is by Christopher Mims. It's finally time to add some smart tech to your dumb home. Then an article by Eric Nyler, Reflective Paint Brings Down Temperature. Brianna Abbott wrote, Cancer Runs in Families, Few Are Tested. Then Josh Zumbrum's Food Expiration Dates, What a Waste. And we'll follow that up with an article by Mark Nadia, Twin Travel Has No Margin for Error. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article. It's finally time to add some smart tech to your dumb home. Up to now, the defining feature of most smart home technology has been that no normal person should buy it. Smart lights, locks, thermostats, security cameras, and other doohickeys have in general been unnecessarily complicated and incompatible. But finally, we are at what promises to be a breakthrough moment. The tech giants are cooperating. The results of this new area of Banhomi, a new software standard called Matter, new smart devices, and new hardware for connecting them. Amazon and Google, two fierce competitors, just teamed up to help audio electronics company Harman build JBL smart speakers that would have both Alexa and Google's Assistant built in. With this new line of speakers, likely to be the first of many, you can now ask Alexa to start playing a song and Google to stop it, or Google to look up a new product and Alexa to buy it. This isn't just two companies allowing a third, Harman, to use their tech. Teams at Amazon and Google actually put their heads together to make this happen. We were very impressed with the partnership with Google, the commitment they had to producing a great customer experience, says Aaron Rubinson, Vice President for Alexa at Amazon. One reason for these companies to work together is likely that smart home adoption has stalled. Sales of smart home gear are actually down since their peak in 2021. In order to take the smart home beyond geeks and make it mainstream, this kind of collaboration may be their only option, says Carolina Malanze, president of tech analysis firm Creative Strategies. If you haven't heard of the new software standard Matter, that's both a failure on the part of tech companies and kind of the point. The goal of matter is that no one should ever have to think about matter. The same way no one ever wonders if their new laptop can connect to Wi-Fi, if their web browser will be able to correctly render a web page, or if their phone can connect to their earbuds, says Jutesh Ubrani, smart home research manager at tech market intelligence firm IDC. Matter, which was developed by members of the industry trade group Connectivity Standards Alliance, 
It's like a common language that makes devices from different manufacturers compatible with each other. Future smart home tech may now just work together, freeing consumers from having to wonder if, for example, their smart locks will cease to function should they switch from an Android to an iPhone or vice versa. The first devices to support matter came out less than a year ago and there were just a handful. In the past month or so, announcements of new gadgets supporting matter have taken off, as have the number of devices you can actually buy. Nearly 1,800 applications and devices have been tested and approved to support matter, which is a leading indicator of just how many are on their way to market, says Michelle Madanla Freeman, Executive Vice President of the Connectivity Standards Alliance. If you have a newer Amazon Alexa, Apple HomePod, or Google Nest smart speaker, you've already got Matter in your home. That's in part because Matter is just software, technically an application layer that tech companies can add to many devices with nothing more than a software upgrade. If you're the sort of early adapter who bought Philips Hue light bulbs back in 2012 when Alexa was but a gleam in Jeff Bezos' eye, the wireless hub that makes those light bulbs work will, in mid-September, receive a software upgrade that will make the hub support Matter. The fact that Matter allows devices to communicate directly instead of having to talk to the cloud is a huge benefit in terms of speed and reliability, says Georgiana, head of technology at Philips Hue. Devices that support this standard should be future-proofed in a way that smart home tech hasn't been. If they can function as advertised, they can work with any of the major smart home ecosystems. Many members of the alliance that created Matter also gave birth to another standard called Thread. Thread is a low-power, long-range wireless communication standard that can yield all kinds of benefits that go way beyond what matter on its own has to offer. Because thread can work over long distances while using little power, it can enable smart devices that run on batteries or just don't clog up your Wi-Fi router with a bunch of extra connected devices. Matter is not yet a seal of quality or industry seal of approval, says Chris DeCenso, a senior principal engineer at Amazon, who was one of the co-founders of the Matter standard. When Matter first came out, a few devices that were released that were supposedly compatible with the standard didn't work on a majority of the Matter-enabled smart home controllers on the market, such as Amazon's latest generation of Alexa-powered smart speakers, Desenso says. As a result, Amazon and Google and other companies are labeling products as works with to guide users to devices that they know work with their respective smart speakers and hubs. In time, all of this should be moot as more and more device makers test their Matter-enabled gadgets with all of the different Matter-supporting hubs and speakers that are available, Desenso says. All shared standards depend on individual companies to make them work. And not every company that's part of the alliance that is defining matter has decided to implement everything that's in the protocol. Tuo, a smart home startup in New York City, 
recently discovered this issue when rolling out its first products, a contact sensor and programmable button designed to activate anything in a smart home. Two used the Matter standard, but found that its programmable button didn't work on the smart home ecosystems of Google or Amazon. Google and Amazon still don't support 2O's button. It's up to companies and consumers like us to help these companies adapt these standards the way they're supposed to be used, 2 CEO Sam Gabay said. With the fragmentation of the smart home industry into different walled gardens, a maker of a smart lock, for example, must either choose which tech giant smart home ecosystems to support or else deal with the cost and headaches of trying to support them all. Tim Both, brand manager at ABB Smart Home subsidiary Eve System, says his company has until now only made its devices compatible with Apple's HomeKit system. Now that Eve can make smart plugs, motion sensors, and the like that support matter, anyone using any of the major smart home ecosystems that support matter can use the company's devices. All of this new tech has the potential to simplify smart home adoption. But a critical question remains. Do consumers really want to make their homes smart? Now it's up to the device makers to convince us all. And now, reflective paint brings down temperatures. Cities across the United States have found relief from this summer's record-setting heat with the help of technologies that shield roofs, pavement, and other surfaces from the sun-scorching rays. Some of these technologies have been around for more than a decade, but are experiencing greater demand as global temperatures rise. Washington, D.C., for example, has built more than 3,200 so-called green roofs covering 9 million square feet, up from about 300,000 square feet in 2006, according to federal and city officials. Other technologies, such as super-reflective coatings for pavement, streets, and windows, are just now becoming effective and affordable enough for widespread use. The Los Angeles neighborhood of Pacoima, densely packed between freeways and an industrial area, has created a partnership with GAF, a New Jersey-based roofing manufacturer, to paint the basketball court, local park, and neighborhood streets with a reflective coating. There's a lot of asphalt and lack of investment for tree canopies, said Melanie Paola Torres, a community organizer with the group Pacoima Beautiful. Given the fact that we are in an industrial zone, that contributes to the urban heat island effect. The reflective coating has reduced air temperatures in the test area at 6 feet above ground by 3.5 degrees Fahrenheit during extreme heat days and surface temperatures by 10 degrees, according to Jeff Terry, GAF's Vice President of Corporate Social Responsibility and Sustainability. Sweltering conditions are worse in urban heat islands, which can be 10 degrees hotter than surrounding suburbs and occur as buildings, roads, and other infrastructure absorb and readmit the sun's energy. Cooling technologies mitigate this. Green roofs, which can include plants and soil overlaying a traditional roof, 
absorb heat before it penetrates the building's surface. Superreflective coatings reflect the sun's visible light and invisible infrared radiation away from surfaces to keep them cooler. And an ultralight paint developed at Purdue University promises even more protection, although the product is not commercially available yet. Each strategy helps reduce energy use. The important thing is to help people cool their homes and workplaces affordably, said Jane Gilbert, chief heat officer for Miami-Dade County, which experienced a record 46 straight days of a 100-degree-plus heat index this summer. The more efficient we can make both the buildings and the AC systems themselves, the less we're contributing both to greenhouse gases and also waste heat that goes to our urban heat islands. To fight the heat, some cities are leveraging federal money and other incentives to persuade local builders to turn office buildings greener and cooler. In Miami-Dade, officials use federal funds to outfit 1,700 public housing units with new low-energy air conditioning units. Local officials also offered a successful amendment to the Florida State Building Code requiring cool reflective roofs on all new commercial buildings beginning in 2024. In Pacoima, in L.A., Torres says residents tell her the streets and playgrounds feel cooler. The number one thing that always comes up is the heat waves when you're looking down the street, Torres said. They don't see those anymore. And now cancer runs in families. Few are tested. Dr. Shoshana Ungleiter knew what her father's pancreatic cancer diagnosis meant for his future. She didn't realize what it meant for her own cancer risk. Stephen Ungerleiter's doctors ordered genetic testing in 2022 to see if his cancer might respond to a new treatment. They found he had a mutation in the BRCA BRAC2 gene, which raises risk for cancers including pancreatic, breast, and ovarian, and can be passed from parents to children. Ungleiter and her sister got tested and discovered they had the same mutation. I had no idea that this was possible for me, said Ungleiter, 43, an internal medicine doctor and founder of Enwell, a nonprofit focused on end-of-life care. Doctors are recommending genetic tests to more cancer patients and their families. Testing costs have dropped and the results are helping doctors choose newer targeted drugs and encourage relatives to confront their own cancer risk. We can test you for dozens of genes at the same time, and it's going to influence your treatment, said Dr. Jewel Samater, co-leader of the Office of Precision Medicine at the Mayo Clinic Com Comprehensive Cancer Center in Phoenix. But few patients or their relatives get tested. Genetic counselors are scarce, and some doctors aren't up to date on genetics training or guidance. After a cancer diagnosis, inherited risk isn't a priority for many patients. It's an implementation fail, said, Dr. said Dr. Deborah Schrag, chairman of the Department of Medicine at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Some 10% of cancers are associated with genetic inheritance, including the BRAC mutations linked to breast and ovarian cancer risk in the 1990s. 
BRAC mutations have since been linked to other cancers, and dozens more gene variations have been shown to raise cancer risks. Tests that hunt for these variations using blood or saliva samples cost around $250 out of pocket, down from around $4,000 a decade ago. Doctors have broadened guidelines for who should get tested, including all patients with ovarian, metastatic prostate, and pancreatic cancer, and some with colorectal and breast. Some are pushing for universal testing after some studies showed that around half of genetic cancer links are missed under standard testing guidance. Uncle Leiter knew about the BRAC mutation, but not its connection to pancreatic cancer or that men could carry it. I didn't train all that long ago, and I stay up on the literature and take care of many patients with cancer, she said. I was shocked. For her father, the knowledge meant he was eligible for a drug targeting BRAC-related pancreatic cancer. For the rest of his family, who also lost his mother to pancreatic cancer, the revelation was more complicated. Each child of a parent with a BRAC mutation has a 50% chance of inheriting the mutation. I was relieved in some ways to know that this is why we've had people in our family die prematurely from cancer, said Arielle Kelly, 41, Ungerleiter's younger sister. I also immediately thought of my kids. Doctors often don't recommend people without cancer get tested unless there is a strong family history or a relative with a known mutation. That means a positive result for a cancer patient can open an an entire family tree to testing. Dr. Kara Maxwell said she had a patient with metastatic prostate cancer reluctantly get tested recently and learn of a BRAC2 mutation. Now some of his dozens of relatives, including children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren are getting tested too. It's an unbelievable win, said Maxwell, who runs the Men and BRCA program in the Basser Center for BRCA at Penn Medicine. Family members who test positive can take steps, including screening for breast or prostate cancer earlier, Maxwell said. After speaking with a genetic counselor, Kelly decided to wait until her seven and nine-year-old children were older to tell them about the risk her BRAC2 mutation presents for them. She got a hysterectomy last fall to cut her risk of ovarian cancer. Ungerleiter had her uterus and ovaries removed last September, followed by a double mastectomy with reconstruction in December to cut her odds of developing breast cancer. I'm someone that does not do well in the face of uncertainty, Ungerleiter said. She now takes more comprehensive family histories from her patients and encourages her friends to get tested or see a genetic counselor. Their father died from pancreatic cancer this past March. He had been swimming daily and working full-time nine months earlier. Both sisters plan to be screened regularly for pancreatic cancer starting around age 50. To find out that I was headed on this path that I otherwise wouldn't have known and do something to circumvent my genetic fate, it was so empowering, Ungleiner said. And now Josh Zumbrum's food expiration dates. What a waste. Some numbers are bad because they mislead. Expiration dates on our food are worse. They're downright destructive. 
Food experts broadly agree that the expiration dates on every box of crackers, can of beans, and bag of apples waste money, squander perfectly good food, needlessly clog landfills, spew methane, and contribute to climate change. Ah, but food safety regulations keep us safe, you might say. Yet in almost all cases, there's no regulation, and the dates do nothing to keep us safe. Contrary to a common perception, those dates are not about safety. That's not why they're there. That's not what they're doing, says Martin Weidman, a professor of food safety and food science at Cornell University. For many foods, we could completely do away with it. Although we call them expiration dates, most don't actually claim anything is expiring or unsafe. Instead, the labels say, fresh until, display until, best when used by, better if used by, sell by, best by, enjoy by, best before, or perhaps worse, provide a date with no explanation at all. The dates originated as a coding system for manufacturers to communicate to retailers when to rotate stock. Consumers clamored for information on the freshness of food and in the 1970s and 1980s, consumer-facing dates have become widespread, although never standardized. Food manufacturers have tried, largely in vain, to explain that these are mostly general indicators of when food is at its peak quality. Most foods, properly stored, remain edible and safe long after their peak. It's intended as a sort of consumer guide to be helpful, said Andrew Harrig, vice president at FMI, the Food Industry Association, formerly the Food Marketing Institute, a Washington trade group for food retailers and producers. It's just that it's morphed into less of a guide and more of a rule. Food technologists and food safety people, they absolutely hate these labels. Since 2017, FMI has encouraged members to coalesce around just two labels, best if used by, which indicates the product might not taste quite as good after that date, and used by, for those cases where food may actually be unsafe, such as meat from the deli counter. United States consumers are widely confused about the label's intent. In a 2019 paper, researchers at Johns Hopkins and Harvard found 84% of consumers threw out food at the package date, at least occasionally, while 37% did so always or usually, though that wasn't what most labels recommended. More than half thought date labeling was federally regulated or they were unsure. An earlier study found that 54% of people thought eating food past a sell-by date was unsafe. In fact, with the exception of infant formula, the labels aren't federally mandated and the food isn't unsafe. Safety concerns usually arise from food that's contaminated or improperly stored. If you care about food safety, Weidman advises you to ignore best buy dates and just set your refrigerator no higher than 37 degrees. Keeping food too warm is a real safety risk. While old food eventually tastes bad, it's unlikely to be dangerous, especially if cooked. 
but date labels that sometimes conflate quality and safety leave many consumers with no idea how to assess whether food is safe. This misunderstanding is one reason Americans waste a colossal amount of food. The United States Agricultural Department has estimated 31% of the available food supply goes uneaten. Retailers discard 43 billion pounds of food annually, consumers 90 billion. That's 387 billion calories of lost food which the USDA says works out to 1,249 calories per American per day. It's hard to determine exactly how much of that waste owes to labels, but probably more than most people think. Refed, a nonprofit that works to reduce food waste, has used data from kitchen diaries to estimate annual United States food waste because of labeling concerns as nearly 7 billion pounds. There's reason to think this is an undercount. In a grotesquely amusing study, households that kept such diaries reported tossing 8.7 pounds of food a week, usually saying it was inedible or spoiled. Then researchers literally dug through their trash and determined that 68% of that food was probably edible. Consumers might not even realize that they're junking good food. Haters of the expiration date take hope from the United Kingdom, where a concerted effort to cut back on food waste has involved standardizing date labels as well as consumer education. This culminated in the UK's largest supermarket chains dumping expiration dates on hundreds of items. There's some evidence it's paid off. The Waste and Resources Action Program, a UK charity, looked at the composition of landfills and found that household food waste was 18% lower in 2018 than in 2007. Caroline Conroy, a specialist at WRAP, has a favorite study. Consumers were shown a slightly less than perfect apple that was perfectly safe to eat and asked whether they would toss it. Only 7% said they would, except for those also shown an expiration date, of which 46% said they would toss it. An astonishing number of people will throw away a perfectly good apple, Conroy said, as they blindly follow dates rather than their own eyes and nose. And now, Mark Nadia's twin travel has no margin for error. As my wife and I prepared to take our nine-month-old twin boys on their first flight, the phrase threading the needle popped into my head. It wasn't going to be easy. We checked the bag, two car seats, one double stroller, and two baby chairs, only to learn that the kids weren't registered for the flight. Somehow we got them on the manifest and stumbled through the security line before they started fussing. Reaching for my diaper bag, my wife made a terrifying discovery. We had accidentally packed all the baby bottles in our check bags. We had never made this mistake before, not even on a short trip. Those cheap but indispensable pieces of plastic were bumping along some conveyor belt in the airport's bowels. And so we panicked. We strode the concourses, diving into each store and hoping they might carry even a sippy cup. We considered approaching a couple with an infant and offering them big money for a bottle, 
though neither of us quite had the nerve to do it. The closest thing we found to a replacement was a LIFE WTR bottle with a funny cap, apparently meant to offer the suckling experience to adults. It was a little advanced for our boys. They tried to drink from it, but ended up mostly soaking themselves with formula. <clears throat> Yet that weird bottle and a few baby food packets turned out to be enough. We made it. When the plane landed, I felt a wave of relief. Maybe the eye of the needle was more accommodating than I'd realized. But whatever relief I felt was short-lived. I soon learned that our margin for serious error was still basically zero. We were sharing a vacation house with friends. After a few days of sunshine, swimming, and trying to keep my sons from eating sand, some in our group began to look a little green around the gills. Whether food poisoning or a virus, the result was the same. My wife and friends fell ill one by one. Thankfully, the twins and I seemed fine. I urged my wife to lie down. Shortly after she retired, I, too, felt the nausea coming on. All I could do was pray, asking God to keep me upright for five hours until the babies had gone to bed. I sat on the floor with my sons, trying not to move or breathe too heavily. If I went down, they'd be left to care for themselves. I entertained them with household objects. A wooden spatula brought me 15 minutes. A small pot brought me 10. I tried to sing the wheels on the bus, but even that was too much for my fragile constitution, and it took several minutes of concentrated breathing to regain my teetering composure. The hours miraculously passed. At the first hint of an eye rub, I steeled myself to carry the twins up two flights of stairs. Laying them in their travel clips, I closed the door behind me and collapsed onto a bed. When the ratio of parents to kids is one to one, the eye of the needle is always small, but you thread it anyway. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.